Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it gives me great honor to welcome Mike Rohde, designer, author, illustrator, sketchnoter, podcaster, and author of the brilliant Sketchnote Workbook and the Sketchnote Handbook. Welcome to the show, Mike. Cheers, Satan. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show, Mike. You are the godfather of sketchnoting. We had Dr. Srini Pillay on the show a few weeks ago, and he was talking mm-hmm. about the power of doodling and how it empowers creativity. And I was prompted to reach up into my library and pull down your book and I went, I have to reach out to Mike Rohde and touch base with him and see what he's up to because I know your blog's going since 2003. So before we talk about your sketch noting prowess and what the gift that you've given to the world, it'd be great to find out a little bit about you and your background, Mike. Well, I've been drawing since I've been a little kid and uh, I don't know how I managed to navigate the world without it being knocked out of me. But uh, um, even as a little kid, I would make things for myself. So if I wanted a newspaper, I would make mine. If I wanted comic books, I would fold up sheets of paper and make my own comics and did all kinds of things like that. I was very much into making things as a little guy and uh, loved to draw. Funny little known fact is uh, I've heard from my parents and I I was so young, I don't remember this, but they said we would drive around the streets of Chicago where I grew up and I would see cars coming and I could identify cars uh, immediately. And when my parents asked me, how did you know that was a Buick or a Chevy or what, you know, I would even know like the models and such. Uh, I would say, well, every car has a face and I know the faces. So I started very early on uh, using the visual tools that uh, were in me to identify things and categorize things in that way. So I think it's continued through and somehow managed to make it through school drawing and sort of uh, actually turning it into an asset. Um, in in uh, grade school, I did lots of drawing and was sort of known for that. And uh, even in high school, I joined the school newspaper and I was known as the guy who could come up with a, a little cartoon that would fit in the newspaper when they had a gap. So what they would do is lay the paper out in the old school way with wax and stuff. And they would inevitably run out, run into a space where they had nothing, right? And they said, hey, Mike, uh, the paper's going on press in uh, half an hour. Can you draw something related to this story in this little spot? Yeah, sure. So I would <laughs> sit down and doodle something, and they would slap it in, and away it would go. Um, that led to uh, – in college, I was really fascinated by this whole idea of printing, probably because of the making part of myself. So I uh, – and also in high school – I was uh, involved in a printing um, system where, whereby you would uh, learn the printing concepts and then you would apprentice in a local print shop uh, and, and then you know, ideally go into that field. As it turned out, it happened right in the middle of the, a big recession and there were no jobs. So um, even though I was very skilled in this, there was really not a future in it. Um, so instead, I made the choice to go to college uh, and then follow this printing passion. And what I found was while I was in college at this local college in Milwaukee, um, they forced us to cross train. So as a printing student, I had to take design courses and photography courses. Uh, so I would, I would bump elbows with these designers and photography students and they would come to my printing classes. And what I found was, um, in the design classes that I was taking, my friends who I'd made over a short time would say, what are you doing in printing? You should be a designer. 
So in in college, I switched my major over to design, and that was a, a pretty big shift. But I will say the advantage of having all that printing background was I always looked at um, design with a technician's perspective. So I, w- I was always thinking about how would I technically make that happen as well as creatively. So that's always been a part of me, sort of this uh, cross between two worlds in a sense, uh, whether it's printing and design or um, computers. I was one of the early people into computers and how they crossed over with design uh, and, and in many other ways. So that seems to have been bound into my experience, uh, sort of finding connections between two different things and trying to come up with a new way to think about it. So, and I think that's why uh, this idea of sketchnoting came about. It really starts with my my training as a design student and the way they taught us in the old school way to do design and think about drawing and concepting and creation and ideation. It just made sense to do that. And so when it came time to start processing notes that I heard in talks or ideas that I would have as I would brainstorm design projects, I just naturally got out the pen, pencil and paper or pen and paper and, and scribbled out ideas and started doodling and exploring and playing. And I will say it, it was an advantage for me because um, so many of my colleagues as the computers started to come in, started to rely on computers almost, I would say, too much. Like uh, as an example, uh, in the place where I worked for a design firm for 10 years, there was uh, it was very early days. It had just changed over almost like Soho in London from this warehouse district to sort of an arty district, right? But it was sort of in the transition. And so the power was actually not well suited to all the people who had moved into the neighborhood. So we'd have these power blackouts in the middle of the summer. Uh, And all my colleagues who were in the office would be sitting and sort of staring out the window because their computers are dead. And I would just grab a piece of paper and keep working. So I think um, all this uh, preparation of doing my own sketching and building, learning how printing worked, being very curious about uh, computers and printing and design and how they intersected, and then marrying that with, uh, you know, drawing and sketching just really seemed a natural thing for me to do. Uh, And it just gave me the freedom to work in many different ways. I never felt tied into one specific way, but would find uh, the thing that worked best, right? Not being so uh, locked into a certain way, but having the flexibility to shift and choose based on what worked in the moment. So that's sort of where I've come from. And, and I've continued to follow that path into user experience design now, where primarily I work uh, with software teams these days, um, helping them think about how to solve problems and how to think about the user first. And lots of times we use whiteboards to work through ideas. So still that sketch noting and the drawing and ideation comes through. It's just a different form. It's whiteboard ink and, and a whiteboard marker or a piece of paper or an iPad uh, as a way to c- capture and convey those ideas to ultimately solve problems and make uh, users' lives better with better software. So that's that's a little bit of the story that leads up to, you know, the other stuff. Is yeah. that is that uh, is that what you're looking for? <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. And when I read the book first, I suspected you worked for Apple or you were on Apple's books or some way because it felt like that. And when you're telling that story you would even more so feel this man should be working for Apple or some company at that caliber. Uh, because when you talk about Steve Jobs, for example, and his calligraphy hobby mm-hmm. and bringing that and the fonts and the beauty of art and technology together, you can see that with your work. You can see that class and that level of of 10x that you bring to your work. I follow your blog and you were offered a role, a high level role in Apple. Yeah, this was a few years ago. and. Um it was, uh, I think it was early on, I think it was 
potentially for uh, iPhone stuff. They were looking for an icon designer specifically. And the funny story was I got the email and I thought I was being punked by my friend. So I immediately called him and said, hey, why did you send me this email? <laughs> Fake pretending you're Apple. He's like, I didn't send you an email. So then I actually looked the person up on LinkedIn and lo and behold, it was a, a true uh, Apple PR person. So I engaged and and talked with them a little bit. And one of the requirements would have been moving to Cupertino or somewhere nearby. And we just purchased our home at the time. Um, I have a, a aging parents, so I wanted to stay with them. We had young kids and we just, I just felt like at the time it made more sense to stay where I was and follow the path that seemed to be unfolding, uh, instead of pursuing this other path, which I could imagine what it would be like. And had I been, you know, maybe married or single or something, maybe that choice would have been different. But in the position I was in, I just felt like it was more important to stay with my family and, and do the thing that I was heading toward now than to follow this path. And it would have been interesting to see, you know, if I was Doctor Who and I could go down another path, what would that have looked like and how would it have played out? But um, you make those, you know, you make those decisions. And that was just my decision at the time. And I still feel good about that choice that this is still the right path for me. And uh, maybe that would have been great, but you know, it's just, just didn't feel like the right path. As Steve Jobs says, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. You you don't yes. know how to connect them going forward. You have gone on to great things. You've done these two great books. You've also created a movement, a community in Sketch Note Army, which we might talk about a little bit later. But it'd be great to move on to the book now because there is a massive benefit to what you're you're doing. And and just for anybody listening, you're in a meeting you're at a conference, or you're a student, or you're in school, you're scrolling down notes, it's it's a pain. It's just rote task work. And you bring that to life. And I felt when I read the book, I was actually excited about the next opportunity to use the skills mm. that you teach in the book. And you know, I went on and then you, you started releasing YouTube videos and started teaching people a little bit more. And it does bring a bit of joy to doing those kind of mundane tasks. But what was your inspiration behind it? Well, it, it really came from pain, actually. So if I tell the story, it was around late 2006 or so. For some reason, I'd come to this place where I took very detailed notes, but I did it very often longhand. And I would try and write everything down and try and capture every detail. And the problem with that was I was an excellent note taker and I hated every minute of it because it was just basically this burden. I was always worried that I would misspell something or that I would miss something. And how would I go back and captured if I missed it. So it was lots of self, uh, identified pressure. And I think it came from actually from doing lots of keyboard notes. And I've almost transferred this idea of having a keyboard except without one. So, um, the problem, the other problem was I would record these extremely detailed notes longhand. Uh, there was no drawing in them. Typically it was all just writing. Uh, and in these books, typically there were big books with lined paper and I would use a pencil so I could make erase mistakes if I made them. Uh, is I would never go back and actually look at the notes after I was done. They weren't really a reference in any form. They were helpful for me to keep engaged in the discussion, but because there was so much pressure, I really didn't enjoy it. And then I found that I just wasn't using it as a resource. Like, why in the world am I approaching note-taking this way? So one thing uh, that designers faced all the time and many others is uh, constraints and limitations. As a designer, you're always faced with, you've got two weeks to do something, or here's the two colors you can work with, or this is our logo, you must use it, and you can't do these 10 things with it. It's always some kind of a limitation or guardrail of some kind. And sometimes, it, if, if I get stuck on projects, I actually put self-limitations on my 
projects to see how I can figure out a way out of it. So in this case, I did that very thing. I I said, well, what would be the most <laughs> opposite thing I could do from what obviously is painful and annoying and and joyless in these notes? What if I, instead of using a big book, what if I used a pocketbook? Could I get away with that? Uh, if I wanted to, to go the opposite of a pencil, which gives me some latitude to erase or you know fix things, what if I used a pen, which once it's on the page, that ink is you know, not changing or it's being turned into a submarine or a flower or something. And so I took those two ideas to the next conference I was attending in early 2007, um, a design conference in Chicago. And I thought, well, let's, let's try an experiment and see what happens. So I went with a small pocket moleskin uh, that I could slip in my pocket and a gel pen. And I thought, well, obviously I can't write the kind of notes I've been my, I'll fill up the book. It won't be practical, but I'm trying to avoid that anyway. So what happens if I just write less information? What if I, what happens if I actually analyze what I'm hearing in the moment and I just write down the things that seem valuable to me, the things as a professional designer that I could actually apply in my professional life instead of feeling this obligation to write everything down. I started reasoning that, well, you know, somebody's probably recording this. If I really wanted to get a copy of this, I could either get a recording from someone or I could record it myself if I'm that desperate for the detail. But why would I do that? So I approached it, these three things, this, the pen, the small book, and this idea that I should only capture the things that attract my attention and that I think I could apply. And so I just started playing around with these concepts. And I found that I really enjoyed the note-taking I was doing. I was having a little bit of fun. I found that I really had more free time because I didn't have, I didn't feel obligated to write everything down. Now I had the, the fun uh, opportunity to do lettering, which I love or drawing little pictures that would pop in my mind as I heard concepts and I was analyzing as well as the writing that I was doing. So it was this combination. I found that I loved it. Uh, I really enjoyed it and I couldn't, it's amazing. Like uh, within one session of trying this, I couldn't wait for the next opportunity to do it. So I kept on doing it and attracted the attention of uh, my friends over at uh, Basecamp, which at one one time used to be called 37 Signals, uh, after doing it at one of their conferences and kept on doing it. That led to opportunities with South by Southwest Interactive uh, and other opportunities as well, which we can talk about. But what I found was I was enjoying note-taking and I was actually looking at the notes that I took. They were fun to look at because they were so compressed, really. Like if I took these uh, big book notes, you know, with fine detail, it might be five or six or eight or 10 pages of notes because I was writing everything down. I had compressed it to, you know, uh, a small pocket sized notebook and maybe four pages for a, for a talk or something. And I could actually page through it and remember the concepts that I was thinking about in the moment and then, you know, use them as application. So that was, uh, that was the real breakthrough moment, uh, for, for me personally. And then the, the, the follow on was, I started posting these notes up uh, on Flickr at the time, which at the time was like the hot, you know, social media platform that, you know, Twitter really hadn't appeared yet and nor any of the others. So I was sharing these things on Flickr and people were commenting. Um, the presenters really liked them because it seemed to capture their talks in a really concise form. But uh, the other thing were people who were not at the event who were far away, say in Australia or some other place would read these notes and say, wow, these are really helpful. I actually get something out of them. And it makes me think that if this conference comes near me, maybe I'll check it out because it seems good, right? It became not only promotion, but it had some level of application and use for someone who hadn't even attended the event. And that's when I realized, well, there's something to this. So I just, I kept going, 
um, started doing it for the things that I was interested in. And next thing you know, I was invited to come to conferences free of charge. They would, if I did sketch notes for them. And then that led to actually getting paid by conferences to capture the notes and share that with their attendees. And then eventually that led to, um, to the books that I created being signed for the first book and that's selling well. And that led to the second book and, and the community that I was able to build and now teaching. So I go to universities and companies and other places and teach people how to think about drawing and sketch noting differently and then apply it in their lives. And it's, it's been a blast. One thing that dawned on me when you said it there is when you're taking notes in this fashion, you can connect the dots yourself when you're drawing it rather than writing them then, especially not typing like mm-hmm. you, I was often tasked with the note taking cause I was good at it. Cause I was actually really curious and interested in the speakers. So I would often get, Oh, well, Aiden, I'll take notes and we'll all, none of us will bother. We'll, and then I was kind of looking around kind of going, Hey, I got the short straw here. Cause you're, <laughs> you're actually barely in the moment. I found what I really got out of that was when I took notes in longhand and then typed them i would nail them home like they would actually drive mm-hmm. home then i read your book and i found when i did it this way and i sketch noted badly and you say this it doesn't matter if it's bad mm-hmm. because it's not mm-hmm. about the skill of the image it's actually what it does even in your brain you start connecting dots with other conferences or other concepts and then you look back on it and you kind of go oh that's just like that other idea or that's like that book i read or that article i read your brain just works in a different way and this is what i thought was really fascinating this is where I thought your work and Dr. Srini Pillay came together for me mentally. It was one of these moments of connecting the dots. Mm, but the other mm. thing I will, we might talk about later on is the benefit this could give to the education system. You mentioned that now universities are starting looking at it, etc. cetera. We, we, we might come back to that and continue on the, on the path and the trajectory of this because it'd be great to jump into now, Mike, some of the skills that you pass on and and some of the tips that we can give to the audience. For example, obviously Mm -hmm. getting the book is the best way. And it's a great read because you you actually beautifully do it in this way. You you illustrate it beautifully. It's an easy read. It's a beautiful read. It's really easy to consume. But it'd be great to start passing on a few tips to our audience. Yes. And uh, we can share some things in your show notes too. Um, We've done a variety of things uh, short of buying the book. So you don't necessarily have to buy the book. So a couple things that we can give our uh, series of video podcasts where I teach tips and I do some critique and, and things that we did, uh, as well as um, samples from the book. So we give away whole chapters uh, and not just the first chapter, but inside chapters that are applicable from both books that we can give you links for and uh, listeners can check them out and see what the book is like uh, before they decide to purchase. But uh, that being said, um, a few things. I think you touched on something very important, and that is the quality. Lots of people, when I do these uh, workshops in person, they'll immediately say, well, I can't draw, so I can't sketch note. And that I knew was going to be my first challenge. So if you if you look in the book, the very first thing we talk about is how do you think about drawing in a different way than maybe you've been taught in school or, or what have you? And very often, you may have not, may not draw you may not be you may not have been drawing since junior high school or maybe earlier right because maybe there was someone better in your school and you simply stopped because they were better than you or maybe it was uncool to be someone who drew or something right there's many reasons why but we sort of let go of it a little bit you know um and so really i had to deal with this challenge right how would i convince people they could draw simply so they could continue following the book if i didn't do that i wouldn't sell many books and so 
uh, leaning on sort of concepts from the visual thinking community at large, which is broader than the sketchnoting community, I had this idea that there is sort of a, a set of basic elements you can use to build drawings with. So instead of thinking about it like, say, your life drawing course in, in uh, university, right, where you draw potted plants or, or fruit or naked people, right, um, it's much more practical. And the idea is this, that if you use five basic shapes, which is a square, a circle, a triangle, a line, and a dot, that you can actually build lots of objects really simply. So if you, even if you're not a great artist, you can use this as sort of a framework to get started. Uh, and this is a really important thing to grasp and, and start with, because as you start putting these pieces together, you find that drawing is really a matter of assembling pieces. It's almost like uh, the visual equivalent of using Legos, right? When you want to make something with Legos, you find the pieces you need and you plug them together until they, you know, more or less resemble the thing you're trying to achieve, right? And sometimes it works better than others, but you never feel like it's a failure if you can get it pretty close. And it's the same kind of a concept, this idea that we're dealing in concepts and ideas and we're not really dealing in art. Now, I will say that there are some sketch noters whose stuff rises to the level of art in many ways. Um, I think in, even those who are amateurs and, and try their best and don't do it perfectly, I actually enjoy that even more because I feel like it's the artistic uh, nature of their personality that's coming through. It's unique to them and no one, no one is like it. Right. So in that sense, it's art as well, but at the heart of it, it's conceptual. It's how do you take, you know, a square and a, and a triangle on top of it that can represent a house, right. Or maybe it's a, maybe it's a car, right. It's a two rectangles stacked on top of each other with wheels on each end. Right. So you start thinking about things in this simple way. And once your mind sort of is able to grasp this idea then you can start looking at all kinds of objects and breaking them down into their simplest parts and then drawing them, right? Piecing them together using these basic elements. And then it sort of, it sort of breaks the ice, right? It gives you, it gives you a starting place. And then from there you can start building. And as you practice, you're able to build these libraries of concepts in your mind, or maybe even scribble in the back of your notebook for uh, icons that you maybe use frequently, right? It, it gives you this ability to think this way and to break things down in simpler forms. And that I think is the real key. I would say in addition to drawing this way would be listening. I think if you can draw basically and you can listen well and analyze, those are the keys. Like all the other stuff is all detail, like layouts and typefaces and all this other stuff, even color, I think is secondary in a lot of ways to drawing simply in a way that at least you can make out the concept and then listening carefully so that you can analyze what's being said and make sense of it. So those are the, the real keys to sketch noting. And I think uh, those would be the two tips I would stay, you know, start with first is build these basic drawing skills and then really work on your active listening skills. It reminds me when I was in school studying the equivalent of SATs in the States that you're doing rote learning, you're learning history, you're learning whatever it is. And the thing for me, I remember I had a, we had a great history book and the history book was illustrated beautifully. And the way my mind connected the stories or the raw data was the images would spark the text. I reread the book before we talked, and it reminded me of that. It brought me back to that. I went, you know what? That's what worked for me there. And therefore, in stuff like maths and stuff that was devoid of imagery or devoid of creativity, mm -hmm. if you will, it was much different. And it got me thinking about, if I kind of zoom back a little bit and think about this 
imagine what this could do for kids who might struggle in school. So kids mm. who struggle with the way t- teaching is done, they get often labeled as ADHD or ADDD, sometimes mistakenly, because they may be just bored. They may be super intelligent, mm-hmm. they may be hyper intelligent, <laughs> they may be super creative. And they may be looking out the window and they may be daydreaming, which is actually a good thing we discovered with Dr. Pillay last week. And this could empower them if they could actually be allowed to do this. Or imagine they were taught this way it was part of the curriculum. Yes. And I can I can tell you that this, this is actually starting to happen, which is super exciting for me to see. Uh, in a couple of ways, I can tell you a few stories. Um, probably the most uh, impactful for me, I learned about a month ago or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's two people, actually, I found two students, two boys, who have something called uh, dysgraphia. I'd never heard of it before. It's something along the lines of dyslexia, but basically it's this inability to process text in a way that we, you know, most people can process, you know, read things. And there's just an inability for the brains of these students to really deal with and process it. Uh, And so out of desperation, basically, uh, the, the parents and the teachers of these two students, they were two different students actually started digging around thinking, well, what, is there some way we can, how can we deal with this? Cause my, I want my kid to go to college and have a good life. Like how do I, how do I provide for them a way that they can process information? And so they stumbled across visual thinking and sketch noting and out of desperation because nothing else was working, actually gave it a try. And in both cases found that it was an amazing opportunity and release for these students. In one case, uh, there was a, a young young man in this in the area where I live who had this dysgraphia, and he was um, he was just really struggling. And when they opened up the opportunity to use visual note taking and sketch noting to start processing information, he would do things like listening to the Odyssey, and then he would sketch note what he was hearing and thinking about. When they would ask him to recite back what it was that he learned about it without his sketch notes. He had some trouble, like in a traditional way. But if they gave him the sketch notes as a reference, he could then reconstruct everything and had tons of detail that he could recite back related to the story, just simply by having gone through the process of processing, analyzing, drawing, and being kinetic about it, it. It sort of embedded itself in his brain in some way. And the same thing for another student who had a similar issue out in California, whose mother was very desperate to try and find a way to do the same thing and and try this visual note-taking and found it, again, really opened up the door for the student to participate in a school setting in a unique way, right? It may not be the same as the other students, but it's uh, something that they could do to participate and understand and actually have a hope for these parents and teachers that that the kid could actually have a good life and actually be able to make a life for themselves, right? In in a place where they may be thought that they were doomed, you know, some factory job where they just follow instructions, wrote instructions and, you know, don't have an opportunity. That's, that stuff is pretty exciting. Um, and, and the other thing is, uh, these opportunities I'm now having to come and teach in school districts. So in February, I'll be traveling to uh, Fresno, California, and then, uh, the following week to Austin, Texas, teaching, uh, teachers, how to, in professional development settings, how to incorporate sketchnoting in their own lives, and then to teach it to their students, because uh, in many cases, they're finding that it's very effective for their students who are very visual and uh, often often are doodling anyway. And it's a, it's a way of sort of co-opting or um, riding the train of this doodling uh, sense, right? It, they want to doodle and they want to be active. Why not, why not take advantage of that and actually 
uh, condone it and make it part of the curriculum. So that's something that's also exciting is seeing students uh, as early as junior high school and sometimes earlier having teachers that are open to this and finding uh, it very effective in their students actually understanding and getting excited about learning. It's, it's kind of amazing. That would be such an amazing legacy and such a validation of your work. You know, when you were saying that about the kids with dysgraphia, it reminded me of the Einstein quote, everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it's stupid. And, and that, <laughs> that's the whole, I think it's such a shame, you know, and at least now people are waking up to this. And in business world, that's ripe for disruption. There's a tidal wave of disruption coming. People are crying out for different thinkers. Yet, when the different thinkers are in their embryonic stages in school, like these kids, that's a gift what they have. Yeah. What, what you said there about being able to reestablish a whole page of text or a whole chapter based on a couple of images is a gift. But yet, we put people in these brackets where they believe they're failing because it's like some kid who's brilliant at soccer and you make him play American football. He's never going to succeed. Right. His common denominator might be he's an athlete, but he's not going to succeed. And the work you're doing there is just incredible. And training the trainer will be a great thing. I suppose the biggest challenge there will be breaking the paradigm of a teacher who has, you know, almost crystallized the way they learn and mm -hmm. reteach them new things. Yeah, I think part of it is there's a new breed of young teacher coming in who are open to new ideas. There's lots of they're looking outside. Uh, their four walls and even sort of the curriculum that maybe has been given down and they're starting to build their own curriculums and be being open, more innovative because as you mentioned, they're, they're in charge of creating a, a new class of innovative, innovative uh, people to come forth, right. Who can do the things that we're hoping to do that we're, you know, maybe not providing in the traditional school setting where it's very rigid and we're building students to become industrial workers from the, you know, the 1880s or the 1850s or something, right? A lot of the, the approaches are the same. And so there's this opportunity. And I think the teachers themselves are the ones that are driving it. And what reinforces it for them is when they introduce this to their students, that their students respond and do well. So it's kind of hard to you know avoid it or not, not go with it if they can see uh, results out of it. I think that's that's very exciting. And uh, I'm happy to, to provide a little piece of you know, encouragement and support for them. And hopefully we'll see it continue to make its way into maybe, maybe it becomes a standard curriculum piece in many school districts. And once it starts happening that way, it's the little stone that causes the ripples. And hopefully those ripples will continue to move forward through the school systems. Yeah. And, and let's hope so. There's an increasing amount of psychological and neuroscientific evidence to show that this way of writing or this way of note-taking is beneficial because it helps us retain information like we've seen with the kids with dysgraphia but also for people who don't have dysgraphia it's very mm -hmm. beneficial you've cited a couple of studies in that case well there was someone in the 70s alan pivo who i cite in the first book and um, his theory was it's called dual coding theory and the concept is that our mind is sort of designed to process information two ways one is uh textually textually so that's reading text and you know words and verbally right that kind of thing and then visually right so there's this visual side that is able to scan uh, images and make them out and make judgments about it pattern recognition those kind of things and they're both very powerful uh, there's been a heavy emphasis on the verbal side of things 
But what this Alan Pivo was suggesting in his theory was that when you blend these two together, they're actually more powerful than the individual pieces and that your brain, when using both channels, starts to spread the information around when it's and it's now interlocked and interweaved, right, where it it actually blends together and it produces a mesh of memories all over your brain in a different way than just using one or the other channel. So that's one theory that I had back in the in 2012 when I wrote that first book. There wasn't much uh, information when I dug to share, but in in the in the years between, there's been another study you can look up call, uh, from Mueller and Oppenheimer. Uh, and what they did is they ran a study comparing or pitting longhand note takers versus keyboardists. So someone using a laptop, they had them watch like a TED video type of video and then take notes. And then they prepared tests to see what their comprehension was afterwards. Uh, immediately after the test, both of them did quite well. A week later, the ones who wrote longhand had significantly better memory and grasp of the concepts where the keyboardist had seemed to lose lots of the concepts in that intervening week. And what they realized were, uh, as they studied it, that the keyboardists were actually just typing verbatim notes when they looked at the notes. And they thought, well, that's kind of unfair. In some ways, the keyboardist had the capability to almost keep up with what was being said if you're a good typist. A longhand writer simply couldn't do that. And at some point, pretty quickly, they made the choice that they needed to capture concepts and analyze what it was that was going on in that video. And so the type of notes being captured were different. They decided to run it again and tell the keyboardist, well, we understand that you have this tendency to want to type everything that's said, but what we want you to do is to actually listen and analyze the ideas and write down the things that are important instead of writing everything down. Uh, They ran the test again, and they found that still the keyboardists were falling off uh, after the week because they had a really hard time shutting down this tendency to want to keyboard everything that was said. So there's some suggested power to this both kinetic uh, way of drawing and writing, you know, it was simply longhand. They weren't doing any pictures, but they were using their hands in a different way and it was variable and they were writing language and processing and analyzing in a different way than someone who's using a keyboard where your hands more or less stay stationary and your fingers move a little bit. So there is some suggestion that this kinetic part mixed with analysis and then physically writing things seems to have more of an impact on your ability to remember, retain and uh, make you know, comprehension out of these ideas. So I'm, I'm really hoping that there's continued study in this area so we can see, does it really prove out? I, and see that these ideas really do hold up over scrut- under scrutiny to really prove that they are effective. You know, it reminds me, there's a huge rise in kids having problems with their grip, for example, because they're on tablets more and more. They're on more computers, etc. but they're not drawing and they're not coloring in and bringing the pen for a walk, etc. And therefore, they aren't getting their pincer grip right. And it's actually affecting brain development. So it ties in nicely to what you're saying. Mike, where can people find out more? I know you do international keynotes, but you also do illustration for events worldwide. Yes. So I would say the primary place to find me where I'm most active is on Twitter. And uh, you can find me under the handle Rodesign, R-O-H-D-E-S-I-G-N. Also, Instagram is another place I'm relatively active in posting images and and so on. You can find my website, which is rodesign.com. And that's where you can sign up for the newsletter, which comes out about monthly. And I share ideas and links and such. And the blog is there as well, which I'm starting to post again more regularly too. 
the other place to go would be sketchnotearmy.com. And Sketchnote Army has been around since 2009. The focus there is really to emphasize other people's work. We have a long archive if you want to go back and see sketchnotes of all different kinds from all different walks of life. And specifically, if you're curious about what it's like to be a first-time sketchnoter, especially if you feel like you're not a great artist, there is a section in the archives called First Sketchnotes. It tells stories of those who read the books or came across the idea and tried it, and then were willing to share what it was like and share their work. And it's pretty amazing to see even the really basic drawings, how impacted their way of thinking about information in a different way. So those are a couple of great places to go. And and then, of course, you know, the books themselves, the Sketchnote Handbook and the Sketchnote Workbook are great resources as well if you're interested. And one thing I'll mention is if you are curious about this and you sign up for the Road Design Dispatch, which is my newsletter at roaddesign.com, part of what I give you is uh, links to all those free downloadable PDFs of chapters. So there's different chapters from both books that you'll get as part of that. And you can have a look at them before you decide whether or not to pick up the books. Nice. Try before you buy, Mike. Exactly, exactly. Nice, man. Well, Mike Rohde, designer, author, illustrator, podcaster, and especially sketchnoter, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Aiden. It's been a great time. Thanks for the opportunity. 